It's often struck me that if an outsider stumbled into the photo industry, they would encounter a world of two halves, emerging talent and world-renowned artists. What happens in between this tough slog of cultivating and maintaining a practice is rarely acknowledged, let alone talked about. And today I'm in conversation with the brilliant Jess Dugan about just that. We talk about their strategy starting out being meet everyone, learn everything, which was supported by a complete dedication to both crafting a practice and a business. The thing that's both really amazing and incredibly challenging about being an artist is that there's no career roadmap. You can really set it up however you want and it looks different for each person and what they're interested in doing and willing to do. I'm Jem Fletcher and this is the Messy Truth Conversations on Photography. Jess Dugan explores issues of identity through photography, video and writing. Their work has been widely exhibited and is in the permanent collections of over 40 museums throughout the United States. They've published three monographs, Every Breath We Drew, To Survive on This Shore, and their brilliant book with Mac, Look at Me Like You Love Me. There is so much I want to speak to you about, especially in regard to your approach to making work, which I find so fascinating. And we obviously recently spoke about a piece I wrote for the British Journal of Photography called Survival Strategies, which was exploring how artists make work and sort of survive post-graduation. And I really wanted to speak to you in this piece because I'm so in awe, to be honest, of your sort of strategic approach and this idea, this sort of tenant you had of like meet everyone, learn everything, which I think a lot of people set out to do, but you really did it. And I wonder if you could just share with us a little bit about those early days and kind of how it felt trying to figure out your path. Sure, of course. Well, first, I want to say thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really honored to be here. And I always love talking with you. So I can't wait to get into this conversation. A bit about my early days, I discovered photography fairly young. I had always had an interest in photography as a child, but I didn't have a formal exposure until the very end of high school. But I knew immediately that that was my path. So I went to the Massachusetts College of Art and Design to get my undergraduate degree. I got a BFA in photography. I totally hit the ground running. I was in the darkroom all the time. I was obsessed. I was very serious about my work, even from a very young age. I was 17 when I began um, my undergraduate degree. And I was really lucky at MassArt to have an amazing faculty. There were people like Abe Morell and Nick Nixon and Laura McPhee and David Hilliard. And I just found myself working with really wonderful artists, artists who had successful careers, artists who worked in long-term serial projects, artists who work with museums. And that was really amazing to me. That foundational experience was incredibly important to my development as an artist, but also how I photograph and how I think about photography. So I feel really lucky to have landed there. But then there was this moment when I, when I finished my degree, I was about to turn 21. And I looked ahead of me and I just didn't know the path between that moment where I was and the career that I wanted, which I, I could see in all of my professors. You know, they all had galleries and museum shows and Guggenheim fellowships and went on residencies. And so I sort of saw the end goal, but I didn't really know the path from A to B. And I was really committed to proving to myself that I could be an artist outside of school. I don't really know where this idea came from exactly, but I think on some deep level, I understood that it was a tough road and that school was a protected environment. And I had to figure out this balance of time and money and my work. And I was just on this mission to prove to myself that I could could make this path work. And so the first summer after I graduated, I had two important experiences. One is that I worked in the print study room at the Harvard Art Museum. I, I sort of lucked into this job because a good friend of mine was leaving to go back to California and my name was put forth and I, I got a job working in the print study room and I was surrounded by original works of art. I was introduced to the back end of museums. I was suddenly like having lunch with all the curators and learning about what they do. 
And then at the same time, I took an internship working at a commercial gallery. So I spent a couple months that summer working at a commercial gallery and learning the back end of that and how that functions. And that also led to my first gallery who represented me. I started working with them the following year. And so these two early experiences were really important. I feel like I had a crash course in the art world, in galleries and museums. I saw career paths. I saw a lot of work. I totally fell in love with museums. And that fall, a full-time position opened up in the collections management department. And so I took it happily. And then I spent several years uh, sitting in collection storage, photographing art all day, every day, and really learning a lot about how the museum would function through, you know, going to events, talking to curators, just generally being around. And so that early experience was really important. I identified early on that museums were an ideal home for my work. And this is both because I love them. I love what happens in an exhibition space. I believe really deeply in the importance of visibility and representation. And I think a museum can be a really powerful place for that to happen. But also, I knew that the work that I was making was not overly saleable. I guess I should say I learned this in the coming years working with a gallery. You know, I make portraiture. Much of it has intense eye contact. It's about gender. It's about sexuality. It has a social element, an activist element an educational element. So I learned early on that this was not the kind of work that sells easily to decorate or, you know, really anything outside of a a museum or a, a serious collector context. So I really honed in on museums and I spent the next four years working with a commercial gallery in Boston. I had several exhibitions. I adjusted my work schedule at the museum so that I worked four longer days, which bought me a whole extra day every week to work on my own work and my own practice. I had a little apartment in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was a little basement apartment, probably pretty scrappy if I were to see it now, but I totally loved it. And and it had one bedroom and I, I built the bedroom out as a dark room and I slept in the living room. So I really set up my life around my work and my practice. And it was, it was such an intense focus for me. So I did that for four years. And then I moved to Chicago. I had always known I wanted to get an MFA, but I knew I didn't want to go straight through. Like I said, I really wanted to get a sense of my work and my career outside of an academic setting. And once I felt like I had done that, it felt like the right time to go back to graduate school. So I researched all of the programs in the country and ultimately chose to go to Columbia College Chicago, primarily because I wanted to work with some of the faculty there. My my two main mentors were Dawood Bey and Kelly Connell, but I also wanted to work at the museum. I had totally fallen in love with museum work. That was my income at the time, and I anticipated it would be my income again after graduate school, so I didn't want this hole in my resume. So I went to Columbia I spent three years working at the Museum of Contemporary Photography, where I became really close with the curators. I had a a really upfront view to how a museum of that size and scale functions. I was involved with every aspect of the museum, from, you know, painting the walls to hanging the shows to touring, visiting artists, to teaching classes from the collection, to curatorial research. And one thing that I did that was really informative to me was that part of my job was gathering all of the submissions that came into the museum and then presenting them to the curators at these monthly meetings. And so I had this crash course in seeing what happens on the other end when you submit your work to a museum and when you're trying to get it in front of a curatorial team. And All of these experiences, both from the Harvard Art Museum and the Museum of Contemporary Photography, plus my experiences working with galleries, working closely with some amazing mentors, it all added up to this intense education in kind of how I wanted to position myself and my work within the art world. I just can't imagine how revelatory it must have been in those portfolio reviews. Right. Is it is it as revelatory as I imagine in my head? Because I know, <laughs> you know, I spoke to Alex Soth for the piece as well, and he had a similar story where, which now seems wild that you could do this, but he said that when you applied for a particular grant in his area, you could go and listen to sort of the analysis of the applications live. Yeah. 
And that's where he gained a similar type of information in terms of what people were looking for, which enabled him to move forward. But I can't help but think, I mean, it feels like we wouldn't do something like that now, but it does feel like it would be enormously valuable if something like that was more public. Right. Yeah. For me, I think it was completely eye-opening. You know, it was so long ago that now this is something I just understand. But I think it really opened my eyes to understanding how the system works. And maybe most importantly, to understanding that there are all kinds of needs on the museum side or the gallery side that don't necessarily have to do with the quality of the work. I think Mm. Alex said this in the piece too. You know, there there are all kinds of reasons why one artist gets chosen for a grant over another artist or, you know, one piece is acquired over another. And I really came to learn that, you know, of course the quality of the work matters. I learned an intense sense of professionalism, you know, just little things like your resume needs to be formatted nicely. Your website needs to be professional. Your images need to be the right size. They need to be titled correctly. It all needs to be easy. Mm. I began to understand the quantity of work that crosses Mm -hmm. the desks of arts professionals. And I realized how important it is for your work to be presented in this impeccable way, because if it's difficult or clunky, people just won't look at it. Yeah. It's just not possible. So I learned this sense of professionalism, but then I also really came to understand all of the factors at play around an acquisition, you know, seeing if a, if a certain body of work crossed the curator's desk at the moment that they were conceiving of a show about that topic, then that work would be acquired but equally good work might cross their desk. And if they didn't have an immediate need for it, it it wouldn't. So it really helped me as an artist to understand that an acceptance or a rejection is not only about the quality of your work. There are all kinds of other factors at play. And I also just got a front row seat into what some really smart curators were thinking was interesting. And that was useful too. So yeah, I think it was huge for me. And I think that having worked behind the scenes at both commercial galleries and museums has really helped me to to know what is useful for those institutions and to be able to provide it to them. And that has made it easier for them to work with me as an artist. The fact that I have that understanding and and meet the meet their needs, I think has been a big part of the success of my career. It's an enormously savvy and strategic approach that you engaged in, which I'm sure was messy at some points too. But <laughs> And I also want to just really shout you out because I know that that takes an enormous amount of work to be that operating at that level when you're right. just starting out. So, you know, there's a, we're talking about a huge commitment here, um, but I do think it's just so great for people to get a sense of all of these intricacies because I I don't get the sense we fully expose these realities, as you say, of what a museum is looking for and timing and, and how all of that plays such a big role in what is acquired. We don't really talk about that or expose that in the education process. Right. And and it, I think that's what leads to such disappointment and frustration for artists early on because they just think that the path is so linear and it's really not. Right. So I think it's so great to acknowledge that and kind of, get an understanding of how people can kind of pick up on some of those learnings. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, the thing that's both really amazing and incredibly challenging about being an artist is that there's no career roadmap. Yes. You can really set it up however you want. Yeah. And it looks different for each person and what they're interested in doing and willing to do. So I know that that can be very daunting when you're trying to figure out how to make your own path. And You know, one thing I did a lot when I was trying to build my career is I would identify artists who were five or 10 years ahead of me, and I would aggressively research their CVs. And I would sort of work backwards, like, okay, this artist now has this show and has a book published, but where were they showing five years ago? And what grants were they getting five years ago? And then I would target those things and try to work my way towards where they were. So I appreciate that you point out how much work it is, because I think sometimes when you see an artist from the outside and suddenly they're doing well and they're having shows and they're publishing books, it's easy to feel like, oh, everything just happened for that person. But 
in reality, they have most likely been working really, really hard for 10 or 15 years and building relationships and building their career and developing their work. And then sometimes the reception kind of hits all at once. So it seems like it just happened. But I always want artists to know, younger artists to know how much work happens behind the scenes. And and we don't post those things on Instagram. We don't we don't often talk about those things publicly. And I just think it's really important for people to know it's, you know, being an artist is running a business and Mm. we don't talk about those aspects so much in the educational system, but you're really running a small business and you're also somewhat entrepreneurial and you're, you know, self-employed. And there are all these aspects that, that are separate from the actual creation of the work itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just couldn't agree with you more. It's something that I talk to so many young creatives about trying to, yeah, just kind of set expectations and kind of best arm them in what is the pathway. Because I think that, you know, one of the, it's not just that there's a gap in the education system about some of these details. I think that for a long time, for literally probably until like the last year or two, I think artists have very much been encouraged by their galleries to project success. You know, mm-hmm. that is our culture. Like don't show the messy stuff, project success, make out it was, you know, an overnight success and kind of run with that because that's sexy and that's appealing. Right. And I think really I've noticed, you know, I was saying to my editor in regards to this piece, like I don't think we could have written this piece two or three years ago I don't think Mm. we were in that stage and I feel like our industry is going through a bit of a reckoning yeah which is tough and hard and necessary and urgent and you know it's bringing up a lot but I think one of the best things that I've started to notice that's coming out of it is that people are willing to be more vulnerable and people are artists are willing to share more and share information and share a bit more vulnerability which I feel like is so needed and refreshing and honestly kind of wonderful I feel like it's really what we need to be able to think about well okay what systems and what industry do we want to build going forward if we know that you know this has been happening so I think it's so valuable and I really appreciate your candidness around this and and sort of sharing your experience because I think it's so inspiring I've got to say to you like I I was very tenacious. And and when I first met you and we were talking about how you worked, I was like, oh my God, Jess really reminds me of how I used to be. And (laughs) since having a kid, I've had to like take my foot off the gas a little bit, but I find it really inspiring talking to you because I'm like, oh, I just feel so energized. And like, there's so much more that I want to do in my space. And so, yeah, I feel like it's so nice to kind of remember that building a career in this, you know, exciting and challenging industry it's it is so much work but that work can actually you know it's so generative so my strategy for making my work and building my network and building a career was always to meet as many people as possible and get my work in front of as many people as possible without an expectation of immediate return. And I think that's something that I witness other artists not always understanding is how much of a long game it is to build an art career and how important it is to show up and be part of the community and meet as many people as you can. And especially working with museums, I will often begin a relationship with a curator And then it's three, four, five years before something happens, before an exhibition happens or an acquisition happens. And it's been really useful to me to have that perspective of understanding how long things take and understanding that our field, just like every other field, is really about relationships and it's about um, collaborating and networking and showing up and being a good community member and team player and You know, one thing I've observed over, let's see, the last 16 years or so is that so many people I went to school with at some point just stopped making work because it's challenging. It's it's hard to carve out a career as an artist. It's hard to make it happen financially. It's hard to make it happen creatively when life starts to take over and you have a full-time job and you have a child. And, you know, it really takes a commitment to carve out this time and, and, and make sure that you're dedicating time and energy to your work. And so 
another thing I've noticed is that part of what leads to success is just continuing to do it, just continuing Mm -hmm. to make work, continuing to put it out there, which is not to say that that's all it takes. But um, I think a huge part of building a career is just sticking with it and showing up and participating and, and being part of the broader photography community. And I really believe that it's important to support other artists. You know, I think there are, there are aspects of our field that are inherently competitive if we're applying for the same grant or applying for the same teaching position. So I don't want to downplay that, but I have always functioned on the philosophy that we are stronger by supporting each other. And so supporting other artists, promoting other artists, being in conversation with other artists, that's always been a huge part of my practice too. I, I don't think it's very possible or really desirable to have a career in a vacuum. So I've always felt really strongly that as I'm working on my own career, I want to support other people as well. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's so vital. It's, it's, it really is often one of the things that keeps people going in those moments where things are tough, just like having right. somebody who's been through some shared experience just to be like, it's going to be okay. Right. Sometimes you just need to know it's going to be okay. And you need that reassurance from somebody in your field rather than a partner or a family member. It needs to just right. come from that place. Right. And even if you're having a successful career, there are inherent ebbs and flows to the creative process. And there are going to be moments where you feel like you're really hitting your stride and things are going great creatively. Then there are going to be moments that are stickier or you're not sure which direction to go or you're grappling with something. And then professionally, there are moments, you know, when you publish a book or have an exhibition that are really outward looking and you get all this feedback and it's really exciting and it's intense. And then out of necessity, that has to quiet again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I I struggled with that quieting moment early on in my career because I didn't quite understand that that was just part of the ebb and flow. And now I not only expect it, but I kind of welcome it because I don't want to be in the intense promotion phase all the time. I need this quiet time to to make. But I think that the inherent ups and downs of a creative career are hard for some people to take or feel a little scary or destabilizing yeah a big thing I talk about a lot is cultivating resilience Uh and knowing that being in the unknown whether it's in your whether it's in the ebbs and flows as you say or whether it's just like in the unknown when you're starting out and trying to figure out a body of work like that is a healthy part of the process like being in discomfort is an absolutely necessary vital generative part of like figuring something out like it shouldn't it's it's like making great work isn't easy like it is it is a little bit like you feel abandoned in the middle of nowhere sometimes and that's (laughs) something you have to work through and sort of getting through that is what really you know comes to the resolve or the or the interesting revelation so yeah I think I think it's so important it's it's interesting that you talk about transitions then because I was really excited to talk about kind of where you're at now because uh-huh. it, it feels like you've really entered a new stage in your practice and earlier this year you launched your brilliant new book with Mac look at me like you love me which feels like you know I've mentioned this to you before but it feels like a departure from previous bodies of work while it's okay. absolutely connected there's such a continuum in your practice but it feels like this idea of being seen is replaced with this urgency of living. And I wondered Mm -hmm. if you could tell us a little bit about the book and how it came into being. Sure. So Look at Me Like You Love Me is a collection of photographs, mostly from the past four or five years. Like you mentioned, I just published it in February. And it centers around ideas of personhood and ideas of desire and intimacy ideas of life and death, of what it means to live authentically, and the urgency of living authentically. There's a a duality of loss or the fear of loss combined with a sense of beauty and a pursuit of beauty and thinking about how an awareness of loss can make us sometimes live more urgently or more authentically or more in the present. The book also has narrative texts in it, which is new for me. There are texts that I wrote that fall into three main categories. One of them is a kind of memory or reflection on 
a certain image or a certain photograph or the process of making a photograph with someone. The second category are texts that really center around why I photograph. They're almost psychoanalyzing myself, where this compulsion to make photographs comes from, what it does for me to photograph another person, kind of mining how I understand my own self and my own life through photographing um, other people and also through photographing myself. And then the third category of texts really centers around a direct kind of desire or intimacy. And these are interwoven within the photographs. And throughout the editing process, we very intentionally separated the texts from the photographs that I wrote them about. And this introduced a lot more ambiguity, a lot more points of interest for the viewer. Um, you know, interestingly, it was it was actually impossible for me to separate them myself. I tried and I couldn't really <laughs> do it because I'm so close to my work. I'm so close to the photographs and I'm so close to the writings that it was really hard for me. So, um, you know, I worked with Mac, who is an amazing publisher and they're very collaborative and um, we worked beautifully together and they really helped me kind of take this work that's very personal that I'm very close to and then put it into this form of a book that was really the, the strongest it could be and the most um, accessible to a viewer that it could be. So the, the work is really personal. A lot of the writing is very personal. Um, it comes from my own experience. It shares some stories that are very intimate. But at the same time, I'm really thinking a lot more now about leaving breathing room for a viewer and letting people bring their own selves and their own identities and their own experiences to the work. So we thought of this book in many ways as a visual poem. Um, you know, the, the size of the images varies on the page. The image placement varies. The placement of the text shifts around. There's not a highly linear narrative. We intentionally omitted any curatorial text or um, even the acknowledgments I omitted because I really just wanted someone to open this book and be immersed in this world, in this, in this emotional and psychological and poetic world of these photographs and the writings. And so in terms of content, the book is still mostly portraiture. I think that my work has shifted um, in this new book and over the past five or six years. And I think, like you mentioned, some of my earlier work was asserting a kind of identity, particularly within queer communities, and kind of saying, like, this is who we are. We exist. Acknowledge us. And there's been a real shift in, in the newer work. I, I've been talking about it as being made from a place of queerness because of my own identity and my own experiences in the world, but not about queerness. So mm. there are themes of, of identity and gender for sure. There are visibly queer couples, there are visibly gender expansive people, there are self-portraits, there are pictures that depict my own body, which is, is visibly non-binary. So that's all in there. But I think in this, in this book, I was really going deeper on the personal side, I was asking questions about like what it means to be a person and what it means to be in relationship with other people. You know, I became a parent four years ago and there are references to that in the book. And even though it's not really about my daughter, I have a separate body of work that actually is directly about her and my family. There's a weight in this new book that is informed by me becoming a parent and how that changed me so much. So I think I'm really asking different questions than I was asking. You know, I'm in my mid-30s. I have a family. I'm, you know, parenting a, a daughter. I'm at a different stage in my career. And so I think personally, all that comes through in the book. And then, of course, a lot of this work was made during the pandemic. And, you know, not all of it. It, it, had, it had started before. But certainly for me during the pandemic, I think I was asking a lot of questions about what it means to be human, what it means to be in relationship and what happens when, when those relationships are severed. And I think like so many of us, I was reflecting on these questions in an even deeper way than I had been before. And so one thing that came, came to be during that time was the inclusion of a lot of still life images. So the book has images of flowers, images of, you know, an unmade bed with a water glass next to it. And, and, I think for me, these still life images are a way to 
introduce a different emotional tone to talk about something psychological. I photographed flowers a lot. There are quite a few pictures of flowers throughout the book. And of course, there's an obvious reference to life and death. Some of the flowers are are still very much alive and some are totally wilted. And I think in hindsight, those pictures were a way for me to really process this intensely existential um, experience of isolation that we were all going through. And also just think about what what makes a life meaningful and how do you pursue that? And also thinking about time. I was thinking a lot about the urgency of living. And so the flower pictures reference time. A lot of the images of people were made at sunrise or sunset. So there's this intensely beautiful light, which I love just visually, but I also think there's a, an ephemeral quality of that light. You understand that it won't last very long. It's like a, a lot of the portraits are made at the very last second before the sun completely disappeared for the day. So there's, there's this kind of reference to urgency and, and time passing. And there's also an, an inclusion of the landscape. I moved to, to St. Louis, Missouri eight years ago from Chicago and just found myself in a different kind of landscape. And I've been increasingly interested in photographing people outdoors. And although this wasn't my, my intellectual driving factor, I've, I've come to reflect on what it means when you depict queer people and queer intimacy in expansive natural space rather than Mm. like a private indoor space. So that's a pretty significant part of the book. There's just a lot of breathing room and kind of um, a sense of aliveness in, in the work. So I think you're right that it's a departure. And I also think that the introduction of writing was really transformative. And I think that has changed my work in a fundamental way. I don't, I don't anticipate I'll go back from that. I'm interested in more writing in the future. And I've had a really long-term interest in text and image but that manifested differently in earlier bodies of work, like in To Survive on the Shore, there was a corresponding interview component with each portrait. But those were the subject's words, and that that facilitated a different kind of purpose. And for me, I identify as the inclusion of my own writing actually beginning in 2017 when I made a video piece that's about my estranged relationship with my father. And the audio component is this rhetorical letter I read to him trying to make sense of our relationship, trying to make sense of why it ended and my own feelings about it. And that letter is overlaid with family photographs um, pulled from my own albums. And so I wasn't thinking about it in the making, but I think this book in a way is in dialogue with that video because it's another, it's another form where I'm telling my story through language in a way that feels urgent and feels important and a way that I felt like I couldn't do with photographs alone. I think I've come up against the limits of photography a bit in my own work. And and bringing text in is a way for me to push past those and make something, you know, even deeper, even more emotional, even more psychological. And all of my work, I know you know this, but all of my work really comes from my own identity and my own experience in the world. And it's the way that I understand myself and the way that I connect with other people. So I'm also really interested in thinking about my work as a marker of a specific point in my life. You know, this book was made at this moment and and it reflects who I am right now. It's different from work I made at 25 and work I make in 10 years will, will be different from what I'm making now. So I really embrace that idea that I will change, my work will change. And these things like books, exhibitions, they're kind of like, you know, you're planting a little flagpole, like, this is who I am right now, you know, and, and this is how I make sense of my life right now. And that's going to change as I have different experiences. Mm. And being open to that is so, so important. I mean, there's so much in what you just said that I kind of want to unpack a bit more. I guess one thing that the work really grapples with, which really resonates for me as a queer person is this tension between needing to live authentically and this desire for acceptance from others, which is true of other projects as well. And it's so hard to articulate. I kind of like, I mean, it sounds reductive to reduce it to that statement that I just said and use such plain language to describe something which manifests in an endlessly complex and emotional way for all different people in all different situations. I wonder what it's been like for you to wrestle with those things sort of in public through your work. Right. Well, I love that you use that language because I think that really does get at the heart of what my work is about. Mm. 
you know, that's certainly what my video piece was about. That's a lot of what this book is about. That's a lot of what I do just through my practice as a photographer, you know, the people I'm drawn to photograph, the kind of space I make for them, the kind of emotional exchange we have. It's all centered around that idea of exactly what you said, needing to live authentically, but wanting to be loved for who you are and wanting to be accepted for who you are. And, you know, my particular path is such that I've had that acceptance from some people and I did not have it from others. And I think that 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 has really informed my work and who I am. You know, I think the conversation about grappling with it in public is interesting because with my earlier work, I did include a lot of self-portraits. I, you know, included pictures of me and my mom together that were very intimate. There were pictures of my family. But interestingly, over time, I began to feel like I was only putting one part of my story forth or Mm -hmm. I was sort of getting like pigeonholed in, in the way people understood me and my family and my identity. And so I think for me, you know, wanting to make this video and then wanting to make look at me like you love me with all of the texts. It it came out of this moment where I felt the need to show a more expansive version of my life and who I was and show the messy parts and yeah, talk about the uncertainties and the painful parts. I think I, you know, it's partially because of the media, but partially because of what I made public. I just got put into this box of kind of like, I'm queer and non-binary and I'm so strong and everything's great. And I have a great Mm. family and, you know, and it, and, and in some ways that's true, but there's all this other stuff there. And Mm. I just felt like it was, it was feeling increasingly urgent for me to tell more of my own story. And, and that meant putting some messy things out there. And, you know, one thing I've really learned from my work and I've been thinking about a lot recently with this new book is how the making of my work is, can be really healing for me and really um, cathartic. And it can be the way that I process my feelings. And, you know, certainly with the video I made about my father, I would often leave my studio in tears because the act of making it was also me working through all of these emotions around it. Mm. Um, And I found that to be true with the book too. So I I think there's this way in which my own practice is healing for me. But then I've learned over the past 15 years of showing my work publicly that, that it can also be really healing for other people. And then when it's healing for them and they tell me that, then that's like a different kind of healing for me. You know, Mm. like when I realize that my story is meaningful to other people or it's resonating with other people, it, it also taps me into feeling more connected and more, you know, like the issues that I'm grappling with that feel so personal, they do have this universal element and other people relate to them. So there's this kind of loop in which, you know, there, there are multiple ways in which sharing my own story and, um, and also really embracing sharing my own vulnerabilities makes space for other people to share back with me. And, and I find the entire cycle so meaningful and so rewarding. And I also think I'm at a point in my career where, you know, I've been working for a while and I kind of understand the cycle of my own work. Um, So something that might feel incredibly vulnerable when I made it, you know, six months later might feel very different to show publicly. Mm -hmm. So I understand that. And I understand how I sort of come to be more comfortable with things over time. Um, but also just just having a greater awareness of of following my own artistic voice. I think one thing I did in this book was I just let the work be exactly what it wanted to be. I wasn't I wasn't worried about making a certain kind of book. I you know, I feel like I had hit a point in my career where I could kind of take my foot off the gas pedal so aggressively. You know, I felt like I spent more than a decade just intensely hustling to build a career and with this book I just felt like I was kind of free from having anything to prove and I just committed to the artistry of the work and that was incredibly liberating um and I think led to the book being what it is is that I just I just centered the work I wasn't thinking about anything 
professional. Um, whereas with my earlier books, of course, I was centering the work too, but I also just had an awareness of how how that was going to position me career-wise. And so it was kind of liberating to to let go of that. Yeah. And just make something much more personal or, or, or as personal as I, as I wanted to right now. I mean, it sounds enormously powerful and it's so interesting, you know, it's such a milestone when you get to that point where you feel like you can let things be. It, it sounds so simple, but it really isn't. And it's such a massive achievement. So it's so interesting to hear about that. <laughs> yeah. I guess related to that, I, and again, it's one of those things that I don't think we talk about enough as an industry, but that's kind of thinking about this sense of like how an artist evolves or how a practice evolves. And this, these quiet moments that you said of research and reflection and, and rigor, really, that you need to continue to help you understand your intentions, what you're trying to say, who the work's for, like all of those like important sort of driving forces of a practice, like you kind of need time, like periodic times to reflect on that because otherwise you can get into the cycle of doing the same thing over and over again and telling the same story or whatever. You can just get yourself into sort of a loop. So it's interesting to think about that. I think, especially in the context of our culture, which is so focused on putting the pressure on to keep producing constantly, you know, slowing down is career suicide and, Right. I, I really want to, um, you know, it's something that I've really personally struggled to overcome. And to be honest, I don't know if I would have got to the point that I am now, which is, in my personal opinion, a lot more of a healthy relationship with productivity. I don't think I would have got there had I not had a child, to be honest, because right. before that, I just would not stop. I really wouldn't. And now I've been forced to stop. But in for being forced to stop, it has given me the tools and space and analysis to be able to think, okay, this is working, this isn't working, like, that reflection time is so vital. And I wondered how you make space for that in your practice. I know you were talking then about kind of, you've realized that you work in cycles. Is that kind of part of that cycle, these reflection moments? Right. It's so interesting. There are so many thoughts I have in response to that question. Yeah, I mean, you know, I work in really long term projects. So, you know, I've been working on a series about my family for over 10 years, and I don't anticipate publishing it for another 10. You know, I just, I view it as really long term, the work in Look at Me Like You Love Me is from a larger project called Every Breath We Drew, which I've been working on also for over a decade. So my practice is really long term. And it has these cycles of making and reflection. And I try to, you know, I photograph in a very visceral way, I'm, I'm interested in who I'm interested in, I follow follow where my sort of creative and emotional voice is pulling me. Um, And then I make a separate time for reflecting on that work. So I try to not intellectualize my work when I'm making it, but I do try to, to reflect on it later and do that. So I have learned a bit about my own cycle. Um, You know, I think your question brings up so many things for me. One is that I think the pandemic even with all of its challenges, which were many, because I also have a small child, which just, you know, completely ratcheted up the the difficulty level of of the pandemic. Um, But it it affected my work in a really profound way, because I'm self-employed, and because I've built my career working with museums and universities, primarily, when the pandemic hit, my professional career completely stopped. Like I went from traveling all the time, giving lots of lectures, doing shows to, to literally nothing for several months. And of course there were, you know, financially scary parts of this, but I found it so creatively productive. The demands on my time had disappeared. I was making a lot of work. I was at home. I was making new kinds of pictures at home that you know, I thought I was bored of my house. I thought I'd made all the pictures here I want to make. And then I just discovered this whole new uh, possibility here because I had to, you know, it forced me to work outdoors. And so I was shooting exclusively at sunrise and sunset, which changed my working method. Um, and I really, I, I kind of thrived in having more creative space, even though there were other logistical challenges to that time period. And I'm struggling a little bit now because the world has picked up again. And it's really hard to carve out that much quiet when 
the rest of the world is moving along, you know? Yeah. Um, And so that's something I'm grappling with now, just trying to figure out how do I, you know, set my own limits and boundaries? How do I make sure I'm making enough time, not just to physically make the pictures, but to like have mental space so that I can like tap into what I'm feeling and thinking and have time to reflect So I do think it's a challenge. And like you said, for yourself, you know, I have a child and I think that inherently changes how much time you have. And also, at least for me, changed what I think of as important. You know, Mm -hmm. I think I think earlier on in my career, I probably overemphasized career building. Like I can think of so many times where I had family in town and I was like okay but we have to go to this opening because I have to meet this curator and you know it's just that my 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 primary goal was building my career and probably to a to a detriment I was always thinking about that like what's the next step what's the next show what's the next acquisition should I have this kind of gallery should I be targeting this kind of museum which curator should I meet you know I was just almost tunnel vision on that and and of course on making my work but I feel like I spent a decade really aggressively career building and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that I've had some success so that I feel like I can ease up on that just a little Mm -hmm. bit and, and kind of redirect to um, putting all that energy into, to making the work and, and my own personal time. But I also think having a child and a family just, it forces you to have more of a balance. And I think for me, that was a really good thing. Of course, there are challenges of, you know, being a parent and raising a child just, just logistically, not to mention emotionally and psychologically. But, um, but for me, I, I also pull that all into my work. Like I said, I have a project focused on my daughter, and I'm actually in the the early stages of thinking about making a, a second video piece that's directed to my daughter, where I can kind of grapple with all of these changes I've experienced over the past four years. So I definitely hit a point where I embraced a better balance and and also realized that because of the work I make my work doesn't exist unless I have a meaningful and rich life like unless I have relationships with other people and you know choosing to have a family and all of those things it's it's that that's part of the work um so yeah and and you know it's interesting because I I had this is maybe taking this in a slightly different direction which you you may or may not want to pursue but I had, you know, spent years sort of hearing and reading and learning about how the art world treats mothers who are artists. And I kind of expected the same reception. And it's been really interesting because I don't know if it's because, you know, I didn't give birth to my daughter or if it's because I'm more masculine presenting or if it's because I, you know, handle talking about parenthood a certain way publicly. I'm not sure, but it's been really fascinating that I feel like I haven't gotten those same questions and assumptions. People don't say to me, how can you be traveling if you have a child? You know, I, I, I've, I've been kind of surprised that I haven't gotten quite the same pressure that, you know, quote unquote mothers get. So I'm also kind of unpacking that and just thinking through what that means. And then of course, you know, the family work really comes from my own life, my own intimate day to day, but I've become aware already uh, that there aren't that many representations of queer families and queer parenting, especially, you know, butch or transmasculine or non-binary parents. And I'm thinking about that a lot too. How can I use my own family and my own story to add a, a needed representation that's really missing and um, and that question has been has been a through line with all of my work, just thinking about, you know, what can I do through the images that I make that that adds something meaningful to to the culture, to the story, to the conversation, and thinking about the power of of creating images that, in my opinion, i I haven't seen as much as I would like to and and things I wish I would see more of in the world. Firstly, Jess, I just love it when we get together. It's so great to sync up and be passionate about so many of the same issues. I'm I'm really grateful that we're having this conversation. It's alarming, but tragically not surprising in our world that we have so many few depictions of butch and trans mass parenthood. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this recently because I've been writing about Kathy Opie's self-portrait nursing, which 
for anyone who hasn't seen it, is an incredibly powerful portrait of Kathy breastfeeding her son, Oliver. And I was thinking about how this photograph is present in so many museum collections around the world, but it dawned on me that still it's probably one of few depictions of butch parenthood, butch motherhood in our culture, certainly in art, besides your work, um, that exists. And, you know, Kathy's work is so radical. That photograph is so radical. Even today, it hasn't lost any of the energy that it had when she first made it in 2004. But it's her identity as a butch woman that really makes the image so radical when we think about representation and dialogue around parenting being still so entrenched in heteronormativity today. I'm so excited for your family work because I feel like this offering is so valuable, not just in terms of our current moment, but also in terms of how it informs our future. You know, you're building an archive, a contemporary visuality of trans mass parenting that we do not have and we certainly need. And it's something that growing up, neither of us had. And that means so much to me, so much that it is changing. It's interesting you bring up Kathy Opie because I think I've I've spoken sort of ad nauseum publicly about how she was a really important early influence to me. But it's partially because of what you're saying. When I was coming of age, I didn't see any images of people who looked like me and it was literally in her photographs was the first time that I saw people that I could relate to. And having that visibility model, the possibility model, having having your identity validated in that way, realizing that there are other people like you, realizing that you're part of a community. I can't, you know, overstate how important these things are. And I, I don't think I think it's hard to understand what it feels like to never see yourself represented unless you've had that experience. And then mm. when you do see yourself, it, it like amplifies the lack that you've been, been experiencing your whole life. So it's incredibly meaningful. Um, but it is interesting, you know, thinking about my family work, of course, I know that photograph and I've known that photograph for a long time and it's, you know, part of my psyche. And then I started making work with my family and I, I, I actually was keeping it really quiet because I just felt like it was a project that required a lot of time. And, mm. um, and also, you know, it's new for me to think about issues of consent around photographing my daughter. It's, it's a, it's something I haven't grappled with before because I, I always photograph adults. I'm very consent and collaboration heavy. I make sure that the people I'm photographing are, you know, willing and enthusiastic participants and they understand where the work is going to be. And, you know, that's different when you have a child. It's just, it's a fundamentally different conversation. So I think I've been giving myself a little time to think about what does this mean that I'm going to put my family and my daughter so intimately into the world. Um, but I'm I'm feeling ready. I think something has shifted energetically and I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I, I've started exhibiting the work a little bit. I have, I have one diptych of my partner, Vanessa, and I holding our daughter um, in the hospital when she was two days old. It's on view right now at the, the Mass Art Art Museum. And then I have another selection of this work opening at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. this October in an exhibition called Kinship. And so I think part of it, part of what has shifted for me is that I'm starting, I'm starting to show the work. And even in this really limited way, it has received a strong response, which has been really motivating for me not only to keep making it, but to maybe put a, a chunk of it out earlier, because like you said, like butch women or, or butch people have always been a part of your life. My life is so normal to me that I almost forget sometimes that it's novel to other people. Mm -hmm. And I've had a pretty strong reaction of, oh my God, this is new. We haven't seen this before. This is important. And I don't say that to build myself up, but it, it, you know, it was almost overwhelming. Like, oh yeah, right. Like other people don't know what someone look, look, someone who looks like me holding a baby looks like, you know, yeah. like they've never seen it before. And so I'm, I'm actually just about to, to share, you know, the first 10 years of this work. I'm going to put some more images up on my website. I'm, I'm I'm working with a couple of new galleries right now and we're going to we're going to show some of the work through the galleries. So I I feel like I'm at an interesting point where I'm ready to put this work out and then of course thinking about what's happening politically in our country and um it just seems important but 
you know, I'm glad you mentioned Kathy Opie and me because I thought if I mentioned it, it would be maybe egotistical, but <laughs> I've been racking my brain for other images and I can't really think of any. And that's so telling to me because Kathy Opie and I have a, what, 25 year age difference roughly. So like, yeah. so that that's just fascinating that there's, there's not a lot out there. I don't know. I'm interested in, you know, I, I I'm, I'm very interested in contributing my work to this conversation that she was really instrumental in, you know, beginning or, or, or certainly continuing around queer representation early on in a way that was really powerful to me. Yeah. It's kind of wild to think that that photograph's 20 years old when it would mm-hmm. still be just as radical if it was made today. Right. Yeah. I find that really disturbing and and fascinating. I mean, Kathy's take on it all is it's part of the limitations of the art world and they sort of think, okay, well, it's only once every 30 years we can have a butch woman be publicly <laughs> successful. And, that, and we've got one, we've collected one, so we don't need any more, which is obviously right. hilarious, but probably quite true. Yeah, it's interesting too, just in that regard, I've I've had more than one curator or a mu- museum acquire my work and basically say, oh, good, like the last one we acquired was Kathy Opie. So like now oh my God. updated and I'm always like, wow, there's a huge amount of time between yeah. <laughs> when our work was made. And, you know, of course it's, it's exciting and I always want to be in conversation with Kathy Opie, but it's just the lack of, of, of this kind of work has become really apparent. And, mm. and I'm, I'm hopeful that that's changing. I, I mean, I do feel like there's a more diverse group of artists being shown and published. And, you know, a lot of publishers are making more of a commitment to diversity and museums are certainly in a moment of reckoning. So I'm hoping that this is shifting and that we have more stories because even within the category of queer parenting, there are a million different truths and stories. And Mm -hmm. so we need more than one picture, you know, (laughs) we need lots of pictures, lots of different, lots of different versions of what that looks like. Absolutely. Oh, it's just, well, I'm like thrilled to hear about this piece, the video piece you're making. That sounds so exciting and equally thrilled to hear that you're going to perhaps release some more of your family work I can't wait to see that that's so exciting oh thank you thanks one thing that I wanted to touch upon is the role of bookmaking in your practice Mm -hmm. because it feels so important and generative and in many ways may have been one of the conduits to kind of push you forward and I wondered Mm -hmm. if you talk about what that format means to you sure yes I love books I have always loved books. I discovered photography through books. You know, I didn't come from a a family that was very versed in the art world. So I didn't grow up going to see exhibitions and, and kind of tapped into that. And so I discovered photography and the photographs that were meaningful to me in books um, at a really young age, like 15, 16. And so I think the book form has always been in my mind as something that's important. I love that it's, you know, relatively accessible and democratic. I know photography books are expensive, but compared to, you know, one exhibition in one city, a book is certainly must, much more accessible. Um, I love the private experience of engaging with books. I love like sitting on my couch and just pouring into the world of another artist. So I, I enjoy that experience on the receiving end. Um, and, and I like the intimacy of kind of having a whole body of work to yourself and at home. It's really different than the exhibition space. Um, I very much think of my work in terms of books. It's always been a strong conceptual framework for me, even when I'm imagining a project. And I would say that that's almost increased with the new book. Um, with the new book in particular, I'm I'm pretty excited about seeing how far you can push the book form and how the book can really be its own object and its own comprehensive experience that's very different from a single photograph or very different from even an exhibition. So, so yeah, that's, that's been the way that I've always thought of books, you know, look at me like you love me is my third book. And um, I think it's, in my opinion, it's the strongest, it's the most um, indicative of my artistic vision I've certainly learned things from the first two that I could employ in the third one. I definitely approached this book with a strong sense of collaboration with Mac, which was really lovely. I'm I'm just at a point in my career where 
I'm really interested in collaboration and I'm interested in working with other people who excel at what they do. And, you know, I feel that Mac excels at, at bookmaking and they really helped me, helped me elevate my work to another level that I, that I needed their help to, to do. So now, you know, and I, I actually do exhibit my work a lot. I'm certainly not someone who only thinks in books. I know some artists work almost exclusively in the book form. I do have physical exhibitions and I, and I love that space for different reasons. I think something, something really powerful happens in that kind of a public space as well. So I'm an artist who works really consistently with both, both types of, of showing work, but, um, but yeah, the book has been hugely important to me. And, 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 you know, I also love that you really, as the maker, you have a lot of control over the sequence and the emotional experience a viewer will go on. Of course, people can ignore that and they can start in the middle or flip around or whatever. But, you know, you're able as an artist to, to say, like, this is how I intend this to be experienced. You kind of create an emotional experience for a viewer. And I think in my newest book, we really led with that. Like the book is all about the lyricism of the sequence. It's about the the way that colors and gestures and moods kind of pour from one to the next. And it's, it's a, it's a kind of emotional arc that a viewer, you know, begins when they open the book. And I do think that is a bit unique to the book space. You can try to do that in an exhibition, but it, it's a little more slippery. Um, so yeah, I very much think in books and, you know, every time I make a book, like at the moment it goes to press, I'm like, well, I'm never going to do that again because it's <laughs> so much work and it's so exhausting. And and then like a week later, I'm like, what's my next book going to be? <laughs> like, so it's, um, I love that. Yeah. So yeah, I, I love books. And, and I also think, you know, we're at an interesting moment in, in photography more broadly where books have a really prominent role. And like I said before, they're accessible to a broader demographic of makers. And I just, I think there's a lot of exciting energy in, in the photo book space right now, ranging from totally DIY self-published work all the way up to, you know, Mac or Steidl or Aperture or something like that. I think there's, there, there are a lot of interesting things happening in, in the printed, printed arena. Yeah, there certainly are. It's a super exciting time. It feels like, yeah, there's just so many conversations being have being had in that space, which feels super generative and like it's pushing the industry forward. Right. Totally. Are you ready for some quick fire questions? <laughs> sure. Okay. How do you deal with self-doubt? Hmm. Well, for the sake of brevity, I would say <laughs> you just keep going. It's good advice. You just you just gotta keep making and move ahead. It'll come and go, but you just gotta keep going. How has success changed your work? Oh, these are hard to answer quickly. Well, I would say having some level of career success has has meant that I think about creating my work in a different way. And I really try to separate those. I try to just make the work that I need to make and separate it from a kind of market or, or career success. But a certain level of success has allowed me, like I said, to settle into my career and just make my work, which has been really liberating. What does your practice enable you to do that perhaps if you had taken a different path, it wouldn't be available to you? For sure, the thing I'm most grateful for is that my practice allows me to connect with other people in a really intimate and meaningful way that I don't know I could do without it. And it allows me to process my own life. I was really grateful during the pandemic that I had a practice because it was it was really essential. Has there been anything you've had to unlearn along the way? Oh, that's a good question. Um, the patriarchy? Maybe I'll just, <laughs> just say that. Heteronormativity. Oh, that's such a great answer. <laughs> Literally such a great answer. Do you think photographs still have the power to shift thinking or consciousness? Absolutely. I think that 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 photographs and especially photographs of people have a power that words or statistics don't have. I think that seeing another person and hearing their story and relating to them is incredibly powerful. That's the end of the quick fire questions. You pass them with all okay. fine colors. <laughs> to finish up, I wanted to ask you the question that I ask everybody at the end of the show. And that's what matters more to you, the process of making your work or the final image? That's interesting. Um, 
I think it's it's the process for me. I mean, I love the final image. I, I love a final product like a book or an exhibition. But for me, I'm really attached to the experience of making the work and all of the things that it makes possible for me. The connections, the reflection, the challenge of going new places and finding new things and being really present in the moment and watching the light and responding to someone's energy and kind of having this deeply meaningful exchange. That's, that's really what keeps me going. I just want to be in that space all the time. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Jess. Honestly, it was just the absolute best. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I feel, feel like as usual, we need another hour. So always, there's always so much to talk about. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the messy truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at gemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.